Thank you again, Connie and Sarah. We had a double blessing today with their instrumentals. Well, the Winter Olympics are here. How many of you are watching the, the Olympics? Anybody? Okay, well, I didn't think I was gonna watch much this year. I mean, we just had the Summer Olympics, right? Last summer, and I didn't think I had the emotional energy to pay attention to another Olympic Games. But here I am, we're watching every night. Watching sports I know nothing about, like curling. Now that looks like a sport that most of us could probably do, right? It's like shuffleboard on ice. Or how about skeleton? Now that looks dangerous. Even the name, skeleton. Do you know what that is? That's basically old-fashioned head-first sledding, but at 85 miles an hour. No thanks. How about cross-country skiing? If you watch that, those people are not having fun doing that if you're watching that. Or how about biathlon, you know, where they cross-country ski and then get the shoot stuff. That looks like it might be fun, right? And then, of course, there's ice hockey. And whenever I think of ice hockey, uh, which I don't know a lot about, it makes me remember the 1980 U.S. hockey team. Remember that team? Shocked the world by winning the gold medal and was made into a movie called Miracle. Uh, and there's a scene in that movie, if you've seen it, when the team uh, plays very poorly in an exhibition match leading up to the Olympics. And the coach, a man named Herb Brooks, uh, who was old school, uh, made the players stay on the ice after the game was over and all the crowd left uh, for conditioning drills because he wanted to teach them a lesson. And he made them skate and skate and skate over and over again, back and forth until they were near collapse. And after each wind sprint, he would call out a different player and say, who do you play for? Who do you play for? Now, these are college guys. And so they would answer their coach and say, I play for Boston College, or I play for the University of Minnesota. And the coach would just say, again. And the other coach would blow his whistle, and they'd start skating again, back and forth, back and forth, another lap. This went on and on until players are getting sick, they're on their knees on their ice, they can barely stand up. And finally, one last guy, gasping for air, croaks out, I'm Mike Erzioni, turned out to be the captain, and I play for the United States of America, he said. And the coach said, that's enough, gentlemen. We're done. He was asking them all the way along a question of allegiance. He wanted to know where their hearts really lie. With themselves? Were they playing for themselves? Were they playing for their old university? Or were they playing together for their country? A question of allegiance. We're going to look at a question kind of like that today. We're continuing our series from the Gospel according to Mark called Following the King. And we've seen so far throughout the series that, and if you've been reading along in Mark, and I hope you are, that Mark's Gospel story moves very quickly. Uh, he's, Luke takes a lot longer to tell the stories, but Mark is moving right along. His story begins with Jesus announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God in himself, and then he selects the 12 men to be his closest followers, the disciples, and then we see this alternating series in rapid fashion of miracles and teaching that, uh, that demonstrate his authority, interspersed with growing criticism and conflict with the religious teachers of the day. In Mark 2, right off the bat, we see the, para, the, the story where he heals the paralytic. And in the process, says, sons, your sins are forgiven. And immediately they confront him, saying, no one has the authority to forgive sins but God alone. In Mark 2 as well, why do your disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath? 
Why, asking the disciples, why does he, Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Mark 3, it's unlawful for you to heal on the Sabbath. Mark 7, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Referring to the ceremonial washing of hands. So now, jumping ahead to where we are today, we are actually already in the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And in chapter 11, uh, the previous chapter to where we are today, Jesus uh, entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, what we call the triumphal entry. We didn't preach on that part. We were coming to that uh, in a couple of weeks when we get toward Easter. But that, the triumphal entry has happened, uh, symbolizing that he's coming into Jerusalem as Messiah, as their king. And then he immediately goes, probably the next day, and confronts the money changers in the temple. Uh, these were people who were at literally making money off changing money and selling sacrificial animals to people, and they were actually ripping off people in the name of worshiping God. And Jesus gets angry, uh, righteously angry. He tips over their tables, throws them out, and in, that, and in that act, he also picks another fight as well. Uh, Mark tells us, uh, that again, that the religious leaders challenged him by saying, by what authority are you doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are coming in here like this? And in Mark 11, verse 18, we read, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So we see Jesus and the religious leaders are on a kind of collision course. They need to find a strategy to get rid of him. And he, as we know, is headed toward the cross. So we pick up the story today in Mark chapter 12 beginning in verse 13. Uh, you can follow along on the screens or, of course, look into your own Bible. Beginning in verse 13. And they, who are they in this uh, passage, the Sanhedrin, that is the ruling council of the Jewish people, the ruling body of Israel, who had just been questioning Jesus about his authority when he cleansed the temple. And they sent, him to, some of the, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Most of you have heard this story before. It begins with what I'm calling a revealing question. A revealing question. Most of you know I came to this church. My wife and I came here uh, in summer of 1986, uh, formerly First Baptist Church of Geneva, uh, as youth pastor. And, and in my final interview uh, with the search committee at that time, uh, Pastor Bob Gray, who passed away in 2020, who was the interim senior pastor at the time, um, waited until the interview was almost over and it had gone really, really well. I was, I was sure it had gone really, really well. But he asked one more question. He said, Brian, I can't imitate his voice, but I have just one more question for you, he said. He said, let's say you come here as youth pastor, and a few months after, you ask to borrow a book from my office. He used to have lots of books in his office. 
and I told you you could borrow the book, and you went in there, and as you reached up for the book, my old corncob pipe fell out off the shelf, and you saw it. What would you do? Now, I had no idea what Bob Gray thought about corncob pipes. I had no idea. I had no idea if the church has some sort of policy about smoking pipes. But I felt like it was kind of a, kind of a trap question, intended to put me on the spot. And things were going so well, and he asked that question. See, I didn't know um, how to answer, because if I said, for example, um, I wouldn't do or say anything, then I might come across as being, you know, too liberal, not paying attention to the right things. Uh, I, if I said, well, I think I might report it to someone, then I might come across as being too conservative, too legalistic. But I thought at just that moment that I'd seen a little twinkle in Bob's eye that I came to recognize over the years later. And I took a deep breath and I said, well, I'd probably ask you what kind of tobacco you liked. <laughs> and the whole committee just burst out laughing. And I was like, whew, I got that. <laughs> See, the, Bob's question was a revealing question. He was asking a question as his way of letting me know that he believed that this church at the time was not legalistic, that they didn't fight over things like that, over issues that were not central to the gospel. So in chapter uh, 12, verse 13 here, we read, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now we need to notice a couple of things here. First, notice he says, the Pharisees and Herodians. That doesn't mean a lot to us today unless you really have studied this passage. We don't really get why, who the two groups were. We probably have heard of the Pharisees, this sort of ultra-conservative group, the experts in the Jewish law that were very influential of the t in the time. But what about the Herodians? Who were these people? Well, the Herodians were those who had compromised uh, with Rome. They supported King Herod, who was sort of a puppet king established by Rome, and they had compromised their faith just to get along with the Romans because it worked out better for them that way. And so the Pharisees would have seen the Romans as pagan interlopers who were wrongly occupying their country, who were enemies of God, and the Herodians were their friends, so the Pharisees would have seen the Herodians as traitors to their own people. And what should catch our attention here is that these two groups were bitter enemies with each other. But they were united by one thing, the desire to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth. And so they make a plan, Mark says, to trap him in his talk. The word for trap in the, in the ancient language means to hunt down a wild animal in order to trap and to kill. It's a, a, the idea is a violent kind of pursuit of prey. Verse 14, And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true. I do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now I want you to notice here, they approach Jesus in their plan with a kind of exaggerated respect and admiration in four different ways. They say, first they call him teacher. The word for that is didaskale, means teacher or master. This is how the disciples most often referred to Jesus, teacher or master. It's a title of great respect, and the Pharisees and Herodians use it even though they don't respect Jesus. Then they say, you are true. 
That word true is the same root word Jesus uses when he speaks of himself and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They're saying, Jesus, you speak the truth, even though they would eventually have him arrested as a liar and a blasphemer. They then say, you are not swayed by appearances. This means something like, you could care less what anybody else thinks. You could care less about appearance or power or position. And he didn't, which was one of the reasons why they hated him so. And lastly, they say, you teach, you truly teach the way of God. Even though they're trying to trap him and ultimately destroy him because they don't like what he's teaching and they don't think he's teaching the way of God. Now notice, all four things they say about Jesus are actually true of Jesus. They just don't believe a word that they're saying. Talk about that again in just a minute. I think we see... Sometimes the same thing today, in a bit of a different way. But our world, I think, is full of people who say nice things about Jesus. Oh, he's a, he was a, a, a wonderful spiritual teacher who taught many spiritual truths. He lived a life of peace and love. He was a great example. But these same people do not believe He is the incarnate God, which he claimed to be in his own words, who do not trust him as Savior, who do not follow him as King. And then this group sets their trap. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Let me give a little historical background here. The Romans ruled the world, ruled this part of the world especially at that time, and they had all kinds of taxes. That's what built the Roman Empire. Uh, There was a land tax of 10% of everything you could grow in your land. 10% of the grain, 20% of all wine and fruit went to Rome. Okay, so it's 10% of your grain, 20% of everything else you could grow, your wine and your fruit. There was an income tax on top of that of 1% of a man's total earnings in a year. And this tax that they're talking about now was a different kind of tax. This was a sort of just-because tax. It was called the census tax or the imperial tax. It was required of every Jew, I think over the age of 12. Uh, In fact, it was required of every person living in the Roman Empire under the rule of Rome for the very privilege of being subject to Caesar. That was this tax, the imperial tax. It was a small amount, one denarius, which is about the equivalent of one man's working a day's wage, but it was hated because it meant that the people of Israel were subjugated to a pagan empire called Rome. In fact, just 25 years earlier, so it would have been when Jesus was a young boy, a man named Judas the Galilean led a violent revolt against paying this tax. He tried to start a revolution claiming God is our king, and he ended up being executed by Rome. So here comes Jesus proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has arrived. He demonstrates his authority through his teaching, through his healing, through his miracles. He repeatedly challenges the man-made rules of religion, the religious system of the day. He's thrown out the money changers from the temple, costing them lots of money. So his enemies come up with a perfectly loaded question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? 
Now, the way the question is framed, there is no good way for Jesus to answer that. Because it's asked as a yes or no question. If he says yes, he supports the pagan emperor of Rome. (coughs) He violates the law of God, denies the very kingdom that he's proclaiming, and he's a traitor to his own people, so he can't say yes. If he says no, then he is rebelling against the power of Caesar and can be seen as a revolutionary. And they can report him to the Roman authorities, which included a governor named Pontius Pilate, and they can report him as a traitor to Rome. It's a trap. He can't answer either way. It's perfect. Notice also the question is dishonest because they don't really care about the tax. They don't really care about the kingdom of God. What they care about is getting rid of Jesus of Nazareth. So their question reveals two things. First, it reveals their hypocrisy. And second, it reveals their intent, which is to destroy him. And then this trap question, to this trap question, Jesus gives what I'm calling a remarkable answer. And that's the part two today, a remarkable answer. Many years ago, um, one of our boys, and all four were very young at the time, piped up at the family dinner table. You know, kids can do this. You don't know when the questions are coming, what they're going to say. But family dinner table, normal family dinner, and one of the boys pipes up and says, Daddy, are you the boss of our family? Came out of nowhere. I have no idea where, where, where it came from. He might, I didn't even know he knew that word. He must have heard it on the playground. Some kid must have said, you know, you're not the boss of me or something like that. Daddy, are you the boss of our family? I, uh, it came across to me. I knew immediately it was a little bit of a tricky question. It wasn't a simple yes or no answer. Uh, because if I said yes, I'd be sort of disregarding my wife's partnership in our marriage. If I said no, I'd be abdicating my role as husband and father. Um, and I could feel, you know, five pairs of eyes looking at me. I just wanted to eat my macaroni and cheese, you know, but these people are looking at me, you know, four boys and my wife looking at me, waiting for my answer. Um, and so I said something like, trying to choose my words wisely, I said, well, I probably wouldn't use that word, boss, but I do believe God wants me to uh, be a good leader for our family, to protect and provide for mom and you boys, you know, something like that. I could tell as I was giving the answer, it wasn't terribly satisfying to this particular son, and he thought for a moment, then he said, he just kind of blipped right over my answer, he said, well, if you are the boss of our family, why do you have to always ask mom, he said. (laughs) So this group of enemies who share a mutual interest in destroying Jesus, ask what they believe is a perfectly designed trap question, and Jesus answers, verse uh, 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now notice, Jesus knows their hypocrisy. He sees right through the flattery and the praise as being disingenuous. He knows the intent of the question. And more importantly, he knows the content of their hearts. How many of you remember the the old TV show, Little Rascals? Anybody? Probably terribly politically incorrect, but I remember Spanky and Alfalfa and the gang and I remember, uh, I don't remember which character used to say it, maybe Spanky. He used to say, and who, I don't know who this came from, I was quoting somebody, but 
but you can fool some of the people all of the time, and you can fool all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool mom, right? Well, here we see you can fool lots of people. You can fool lots of people with your, with your eloquent words or with your religious behavior. You can even fool yourself, but you can't fool Jesus. You can't fool God. And then, as he often does, Jesus answers a question Excuse me, with a question. Why put me to the test? And that word test is the same word used when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Why do you put me to the test? I know what you're up to. I know your motives. You should know by now you can't trap me with words. Then he says, bring me a denarius. Now, the denarius was a simple Roman coin. Uh, And once he has the denarius in his hand, he asks another question. He says, whose likeness, and the word for likeness is icon, means image. Whose likeness or image and inscription is this? Now, one side of the coin, uh, there was an image of Caesar with the inscription Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side, uh, the flip side, the tail side, would have been another inscription called, uh, that said Pontifex Maximus, or high priest in Latin. Now, this coin, because of those images and those inscriptions, would have been highly offensive to the Jewish people because it bore the image of a pagan emperor who claimed to be a god, small g. Blasphemy of the worst kind. In fact, many Jews wouldn't even have coins like this in their hand if they could keep uh, keep from it. But they had to use this coin to pay this tax. That's why they hated the coin and the tax. The Pharisees and Herodians think they have Jesus backed into a corner that he can't escape, and he gives the remarkable answer, and we all know it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. And in this simple, remarkable answer is what I'm calling a revolutionary challenge. It's part three today, a revolutionary challenge. I came across a quote by Pastor Kent Hughes, who's retired now, but he was a pastor at College Church in Wheaton for decades wrote many commentaries on the Bible. Here's his quote about this text. He says, The statement by our Lord was not only astounding the moment it was uttered, but is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. Rather strongly put, but why would he say this? In one shockingly simple and straightforward statement, Jesus tells us how we are to relate to human government, and at the same time tells us how to relate to God. Here it is again. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. First, how are we to live in relation to Caesar? How are we to live in relation to human government? We need to see a subtle language thing here. A subtle change in language used in this text. The question asked by the Pharisees and Herodians is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? But the word they use for pay taxes is the specific word used just for paying this kind of tax. And it can be translated, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? But when Jesus answers, he uses a different word for taxes. He says, render to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's. The word render means give back or return. So what he's saying is the denarius 
bears the image of Caesar. Therefore, it belongs to Caesar, so render it to him. Give it back. In paying the tax, you're not giving tribute to Caesar. You're not honoring Caesar. You're simply giving back what already belongs to Caesar. In other words, render to human authorities, to governments, that which belongs to them. The Apostle Paul actually expounds on this greatly in Romans chapter 13. Let me read a portion of this for us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For because of this you also pay taxes, For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I was thinking about that this week, whether I'd read that text or not. And it seems to me that there are a whole lot of those who call themselves followers of Jesus who live as if this passage is not in our Bible. Would you agree? Who live as if Jesus never said what he said, and Paul never wrote what he wrote. See, Jesus' answer was revolutionary because it exposed the hypocrisy and the sin of both the Pharisees and the Herodians. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying he expects his followers to be good citizens. He expects his followers to pay their taxes. Now, remember the political context here. We can forget this. This is happening under and in the rule of the Roman Empire. This is a dictatorship. This is one of the most brutal regimes in the history of humanity, the Roman Empire. And this is what Jesus says. This is what Paul writes. In just a few days, Jesus is going to be put to death on a Roman cross at the order of a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. The Apostle Paul was eventually executed by a Roman emperor. And yet, Jesus, nor Paul, did not call for a political revolution, did not call for armed overthrow of pagan authorities. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, what does this mean for us? 2,000 years later. If this is what Jesus expected of his followers living under the brutal and totalitarian rule of Rome... It's also what he expects of us. So the question that always comes next is, well then, when do we disobey government? When do we resist? When do we confront? As I see it, understand it, there are only two situations where we are given the freedom to defy or disobey human authority that God has put in place. One, when our government demands that we do what God clearly forbids. If that happens, we must disobey and be willing to face the consequences. For example, if someday a law is passed that requires the termination of any problematic pregnancy, let's say Down syndrome, we would have to disobey and be willing to go to prison for that. If a law were passed someday requiring the public worship 
of, let's say, a president or some political figure, we would have to disobey and maybe go to jail as a consequence. Why? Because God has expressly forbidden both in his word. That's clear. We get that, right? Secondly, when our government prohibits us doing what God commands us to do, we must disobey and be willing to endure the consequences. For example, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are preaching the gospel of Jesus. They're ordered to stop by the authorities. They refuse to stop, and they're thrown in jail. And they keep preaching there until they, the, the authorities make a different decision. Years ago, I visited a church, uh, there was a sister church in Russia, and the pastor there told me a story about a time when the local communist authorities made a law forbidding anyone to give money to a religious organization. They were trying to crush the church by eliminating generosity. I wonder in our culture, would that be bad news? He said their people kept giving and some of them went to jail because they, violated, because they disobeyed a law that was contrary to what God had told them to do. Here's the thing. God has not made provision for us to resist human authority just because we're uncomfortable or just because we disagree with the policy. It's not, that's not what he says. He's saying we, we can disobey and we sh- must disobey when it is contrary to what he has clearly told us in his word, not if it has to do with our comfort or our agreement with a policy. In the, the entire New Testament, if we think of it, was written under the rule of the Roman Empire, the entire New Testament. And those early Christians were never taught to revolt. They were never encouraged to, to march on Rome. They were taught to follow Jesus. They were taught to love their neighbor, no matter who that neighbor was. They were taught to live with mercy and compassion and grace. And the miracle of the whole story is Rome disappeared into history. And the church is still here. Because following Jesus is the ultimate revolutionary act in any culture. When Jesus says, you're asking, when Jesus, uh, when Jesus' enemies say, should we pay tribute to Caesar or not? Jesus basically says back, you're asking the wrong question. The real question is not what should we give back to Caesar. That's easy. Give, pay your taxes. The real question is what do we never give to Caesar? What ought we never give to Caesar? What do we only give to God? That leads to the second question. How are we to live in relation to God? If we go back to that coin for a minute, the denarius, Jesus said, whose likeness or image is on the coin? Caesar's. So render it, give it back to Caesar. But when he says render to God what is God's, he's also talking about image and likeness. In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, right at the beginning of all creation, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So it's as if, instead of a coin, when Jesus says this, he, he calls out and holds up, for example, an unborn child. Or he holds up a feebly, feeble elderly person. Or he holds up a hideously deformed leper. Or a dishonest tax collector. And he says, whose image is this? And the answer is God's. 
It's God's image. And because we're created in the image of God, we have infinite and eternal value. We belong to God. We answer to God. We are to render to God what is only due to God. Our worship, our hearts, our ultimate loyalty, our lives. And the corollary truth is this. We are never, we are never to give these things to Caesar. They do not belong to him. You see? We do not belong to him. When we... um, at home, when we make our mortgage payment every month, when you make your mortgage payment every month, we are simply rendering to the bank what belongs to the bank. We're simply rendering back, giving back to the bank what I owe the bank. Now, I may may not like my interest rate. I may not like my bank for other reasons, when they charge me for being overdrawn, for example but I render back what I owe. But let's say my bank calls me one day and insists that in addition to making my monthly payment, I must also come in for an hour every weekend and offer my extravagant devotion, my worship to the bank president. I have to offer my allegiance, I have to bow my knee to the bank president. Now that's a different thing altogether. And we'd have problems. Right? Mark tells us in verse 17, and they marveled at him. They were astonished. It's like a mic drop moment. Not just because he gave them a clever answer, but because he gave them a new way. In one sentence, he gave them a new way to think about Caesar, to think about God, to think about themselves. He gave them new hope, not political revolution, but spiritual revolution, spiritual rebirth. We are made in God's image. That image has been marred by sin, but that image can be restored by the one who made us, who loves us, by the king who covers our sin by his own blood. And that part of the story is still coming in our series. Hear what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, I thank you for your word today. We thank you for being our teacher. For being our teacher who is true. Who is truth itself. And more than that, who is our King. Lord, we live in a complex world, a world of government and taxes, with all kinds of allegiances and loyalties, but it's always been that way for your people. Remind us today that our ultimate allegiance is to you as our God and King. Remind us that while we are to respect the God-given role of government, we are never to allow human authority to take your place in our hearts. And we give our worship today, and we give our hearts today only to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.